Welcome to the Real Estate Investors Weekender Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the award-winning editorial staff at nreionline.com. Let's jump right into this week's top news, features, and blog posts. Welcome to NREI Weekender with your host, David Bodemer. Let's dive into this week's top stories. Good afternoon, David. How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing fine. Fantastic. Ready for the news. What are we covering today? Well, we got um, some interesting new pieces from the week. Uh, we're going to look at some of the stuff that we covered this week. We we looked at how uh, high net worth investors, what some of their investment patterns in based on a new study that came out and mm-hmm. um, how that aligns with some things we've seen previously. Um, there was also some interesting data on a power center investment. We had a piece that looked on bank exposure risk on commercial real estate lending and how that's creeping up. Uh, Also, a piece about apartment building owners grappling with some of the tougher standards that that are being placed on them in terms of Mm. energy use and other green initiatives. And then um, lastly, we wanted to touch on uh, what's going on with self-storage development. So that's, that's what we got for this week. All right. You said an Appfolio survey has found out some information about high net worth investors. What do we got here? Yeah, so this is uh, an interesting piece. I mean, high net worth investors have been of particular interest to the commercial real estate sector uh, in the past, I don't know, probably you know, five to 10 years, partly because this this universe of investors mm-hmm. uh, keeps getting larger. And as their name would suggest, they have a lot of capital. Now, a lot of their advisors in terms of trying to achieve their investment returns will tell them put a certain amount of money in equities, put a certain amount in bonds. And then a commercial real estate is often also recommended as part of, of their bucket. Mm-hmm. So this is where both the opportunity and challenges come in. And I think this is what, what some of these new survey findings were underscoring. One thing is that it, it found that a big challenge for uh, high net worth investors, especially when they're trying to invest in property, is finding investment managers that uh, are have the expertise to kind of guide those kind of investments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then another piece of it was when they are investing in commercial real estate, where their preferences lie. Mm. So those were kind of the the couple of the takeaways that, that I had from it. Um, starting with the second thing first, what the study found in terms of the property types is that high net worth investors prefer multifamily and then office ranked second. So this was an, pretty interesting, uh, an industrial ranked third. Uh, so the issue or the, the thing that's interesting, multifamily being the top is not that surprising because um, that's the, the best performing commercial real estate sector for many years. It's a stable investment. Uh, it's got a good outlook there. You know, there's not much indication that that there there are concerns for it but office finishing above industrial is an interesting outtake here partly because on a performance basis industrial has performed better and has uh, probably a better outlook than the office sector does so the fact that high net worth investors have a reverse preference for that is sort of a um sort of interesting yeah you, i would think there'd be a little bit more security yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of if you're investing in industrial, there, I think that's a more secure investment at this point. Exactly. I think what we found in the, is that partly when you're looking at high net worth investors, 
they have another um, factor that comes into play besides just the performance of the getting the returns or the security and the investment. Mm -hmm. And there's a little bit of a vanity play. So yeah. So if you think about it, they're going to buy some real estate. They want to be able to point to the point to point to a nice building. Mm -hmm. And then if you think about, okay, a part, a nice apartment building could be a a fairly nice thing, you know, especially in urban settings. So, so, you know, a a, a nice big apartment building can be a nice thing. As opposed to a big old warehouse. Yes, exactly. That so that that's exactly where it, where it's going. Yeah. So it's like warehouses don't seem that like sexy. Um, yeah. <laughs> not not that I've seen. I haven't seen a yeah. whole lot. They're dressed up in high heels or anything that uh, would really turn my fancy as far as a warehouse is concerned. Right. As opposed to like a nice fancy office building or even a nice um, nice suburban office campus uh, or an apartment building. Those I think those might seem more tangible to to, to that kind of investor uh, yeah. as opposed to an industrial building, which yeah looks like a plain a box uh, a could. Gotcha. So I think that relates to actually that the other point that the survey had is that concern of these investors is who are they working with, who's managing their funds, mm-hmm. you know, and if, if the person that they're working with, I think, can point them to the sector that might get them the better returns, um, that might yeah. be a good thing. But it seems like part of that as well is, is there was a time where getting quarterly reports uh, or annual reports on your investments was enough, but now with just given the society we live in, it sounds like people want more frequent reporting of their data as well. So they want both mm-hmm. an investment manager that's you know that that's got the experience, but also can give them a lot of data on a real time basis. So there's like a technology aspect to it as well as as a competency aspect to it. Yeah, I mean it's it's a microwave generation, right? It's it's instant gratification. I want to know exactly what's going on. What I want to know what's going on, uh, because I think they feel like they have more power in that situation. Don't you? Yes, I think that's true. And then I think it's also like if you're comparing it to like, okay, I own a stock. I can see how that's, uh, how, you know, if that's up or down every single mm-hmm. day, you know, real estate doesn't really function like that. So it's not going to like, going to vary on, on that kind of same basis. But I think, you know, I guess trying to bridge the gap of giving them more reporting on how their asset is performing or their investments are performing is, is what they want. Yeah. Does uh, the ability to buy or sell or um, how liquid a, an investment is in these three categories, are any of them better than the other to where somebody would say, you know, if I, if I want to sell, I can sell this type of property more quickly. So I'd rather be a little bit more flexible than something that I feel like I'm locked into or, or is that make a difference at all? I think it's a good question. I, I think for a high net worth investor in real estate, they may not be as concerned about liquidity and flipping assets as, as opposed to wanting, you know, if, if you think about where real estate may fit in their portfolio, it's probably mm-hmm. a longer term play it should be, where yeah. they're looking for a return. But I think, you know, if they were looking, but some of them may, you know, may have bigger exposure, may want to do that. So I think the ones that are, the, that are performing the best and most wide demand, which are the, the ones mm-hmm. we talked about multifamily or industrial, you know, there's just a lot of demand for them. So office gotcha. may be a little tougher again. You know, it's not like it's just the sector is, is, is struggling by any means, but there are are some some issues in terms of fundamental performance, like tenants are demanding less space, more workers are working remotely. So, so that's leading to people wanting smaller leases or more flexible leases than they would in the past. So that's having some mm-hmm. impacts mm-hmm. On, on the office sector, which then might translate into future performance and your ability maybe to sell that asset. Okay. So I know that it, during that that story, we didn't really talk about retail, um, but what's going on in the power centers? 
So with power centers, what, there's a bit, been a recent report, which, which was somewhat surprising on, on the headline basis, which was that investment in power centers increased by 30% in the first quarter of 2019, making it the most active quarter for investment in power centers in, since 2016. That's according to research mm. from uh, JLL. Given that power center tenants like you know, the big box stores have been struggling mm-hmm. for, for years, has been one of the uh, more hard hit areas uh, for retail. So there hasn't been that much interest in power centers. Uh, it's been one of those parts of the retail universe that's struggled. Uh, so, you know, seeing that number, it did jump out that like suddenly, oh, like what, you know, there's a big year over year um, jump. I think what though, then they quickly did point out in the report that this, you know, it's both like good news and bad news. It's one, you know, yes, there's, it's, it's good that maybe that the power centers may have cratered and now there's more, you know, opportunity and more interest, but it's also, you know, it's partly such a big improvement because things were so low. So it's like, you know, at mm-hmm, some point mm-hmm. things hit a bottom and they start coming back up and yes, yeah, so you're going to like have growth. At, but that doesn't then fundamentally mean that power centers are yet doing well. Yeah, I think the, the other um, sort of thing that was underscored here is that one of the reasons that investors are targeting power centers is because they've done poorly. So that means that they're, is more opportunity for upside. So these are kind of like uh, opportunity plays, I guess. That's that's what we're that's what we're seeing an mm-hmm. uptick in in activity in the sector being driven by investors who, rather than buying you know assets that may have peaked or near peak that may be pretty high have high occupancy levels, you know there's not as much upside when you buy that asset. Um, whereas if you look at a power center space, maybe if you have a business plan that can bring in um, new tenants or alternative tenants, then you can realize some returns on that investment. Mm. So I think that, um, for example, they pointed to healthcare clinics, um, potentially putting grocery stores in some of these kind of uh, spots, doing that kind of thing, or you know, um, fitness centers, other kinds of uses that may not have been there before. That may be the opportunity that people are seeing and may be part of why we're seeing higher transaction volume in that space. Yeah. I mean, as good as as it is to be able to shop online, you really can't, right. you know, shop for a gym and get a gym membership online and, and use it well, or healthcare cleanse. You're not going to shop for a doctor online and, and do it uh, as well as what you could do uh, as shopping from a big box store online. So it makes perfect sense that they're mm-hmm. service oriented investments uh, or, or businesses that'll take those spaces because you just can't do that any other way, but actually physically be there. Right. So it's about um, experiential retail or about, right, you said services. Uh, that That's kind of the future of some of these spaces that, you know, in the past were the Best Buys uh, or more recently, you know, even some of the bookstores that are still sort of like on the fence. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's just like so many, so many of these concepts that are either, you know, not expanding or closing or going out of business. It's a lot of real estate to deal with. But if you can create can fill it with something that's not as not just reliant on moving merchandise, but it's about providing an experience, providing a service, like you said, that can't come online. You know, maybe that's um, the investment angle here. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I know our third story is about bank exposure uh, and it's actually their, their exposure seem or their risk seems to be creeping a little bit higher. You said. Yeah, so this is based on a piece of reporting based on a piece of research from Credify. I think that they were they were 
cautious in how they, they they put this out, which was that you know they're not trying to say that that there are high levels of risk in in the system at this point, but that they I think that they have found some concerns mm-hmm. um, just given that some banks maybe too, have too much exposure to commercial real, real estate at, at this point. And, you know, because, and I think the concern here is if you look back to the last cycle, a lot of banks had a lot of exposure both to retail real estate and commercial real estate. Then, you know, when the financial system came crashing down and the Great Recession hit, um, banks had a lot of bad loans on their books that was tied to real estate. So I think that's like sort of like, you know, the, the context and the underlying concern. I th- wanted to read like one quote from, we talked to the CEO, mm-hmm. um, Eli Raisin, about um, about this. And he said, we did not issue this report to say all bank lending is problematic. It's absolutely not. However, certain areas of lending and certain institutions are taking on more risk and we are simply calling this out. So I feel like that's like an important thing to underscore when we talk about risk. This is not about like raising the alarm bells, um, that there are systematic issues, but that, you know, maybe some banks may be just getting a little bit ahead of themselves. Important piece of context is that overall, there's about $4.1 trillion in total commercial real estate debt across all lending services. So we're not talking about um, a small amount of cash here. <laughs> you know, we're talking about banks that are have, have a decent amount of exposure to uh, commercial real estate. And I think of particular concern, what they did flag is that the risks that construction loans could pose at this point in, in the cycle, you know, it's construction loans, um, until the project is stabilized and the owner could refinance into some kind of permanent piece of financing, you know, that's always the the issue when things are, you know, when the, when the, everything is, is moving along smoothly and people are delivering their, projects, getting them fully leased, um, able to stabilize the asset, pay, you know, then refinance or move on, that's fine. The problem could be if we suddenly hit some kind of bump in the road and then therefore people get stuck, mm-hmm. they don't actually deliver the property the way they thought. Suddenly there are issues maybe for both the borrower and the lender. The other concern that they tagged in here is that we're in a period where construction costs are rising. So, you know, just given that the development timeline on a project can be a couple of years or more. You may have penciled out the loan um, at seventy-five to eighty percent loan to cost when you're, you know, at the beginning of the cycle. Suddenly, you know, two years mm. materials costs are going up. Various things may be changing. Suddenly, now you're at ninety percent of, co- you know, the loan to cost. That's, you know, that's a little bit that can be a little mm. uh, dicier situation. Th- what they also explained is that what that could, could trigger is that one one of the results of the Great Recession and the problems that we had in the financial system were, you know, some new some new rules for banks in terms of how much reserve capital they need to have on hand, or um, if they have what is what is called a high volatility commercial real estate loan, requires more capital reserves. Um, mm-hmm. So if some loans need to be reclassified as that, that suddenly puts some more pressure on, you know, you have to have more cash on hand to cover reserves. That means you can do less, you know, new lending. So it puts just kind of a drain, could put a drain on banks in their in their day-to-day business. One of the experts we talked to, KC Conway, he said that there, you know, he's he put it as, you know, there is a possible day of reckoning coming when it comes to this kind of um, – 
issue. And it could be sometime in 2020 as some of these borrowers that were, you know, that are, that were taking on the construction loan start trying to move to, to permanent financing as we were just um, sort of talking about. So that's, that's, you know, those are some of the, the, the key points that um, were, were in this report. What do you think the banks are? I mean, I don't think the banks like taking more risk. I mean, what are the, what's the overall feel as far as, you know, the, the longevity of this situation? You know, that's a, I think it's hard to say. I think that's a really good question. I think that the exposure is not uniform across the board. So, you know, some banks, this is not even, you know, remotely going to be concerned about that they have, you know, they're properly balanced. They have a little bit of real estate, even if some of it goes bad, um, they can deal with it. This might be more of an issue mm-hmm. for, you know, and which which was true in the last um, cycles that there could be smaller local and regional banks, which maybe, you know, get a little bit overly ambitious and trying to finance a project. Um, and then suddenly like, you know, mm-hmm. that project or a couple of projects in their markets come to be an issue. That That's what, that's kind of how we saw it play out in the last cycle is that the, you know, obviously we had some problems with the big banks, but it was a lot of the small banks that also, you didn't really, you know, weren't getting the big headlines, but had a lot of the workout issues and a lot of the stuff that, you know, needed to be sorted out through the distressed uh, process or loans being taken off their books or bank mergers or all that kind of stuff. So I don't know. I mean, like, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't think anybody's foreseeing a replay of um, the 2008 financial crisis, even with these concerns. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's just something that we should be aware of given how deep we are into this cycle and, you know, just given what, what's happened in past cycles. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm hoping people are going to be a little bit uh, more reserved, a little, <laughs> a little, uh, <laughs> A little safer, maybe. I don't know. We'll we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. Yeah, and I think that that was like the thinking behind, you know, the the re, the reserve levels that are, that banks are being required to hold mm-hmm. is is partially helped is partially meant to help offset the risk and 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 help to prevent anybody from getting into the kind of trouble that they did last time. You know, if you have yeah. if you are required to hold some capital on hand, that maybe helps you get through some any troubled loans you might have. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's a great story about, you know, learning a little bit from history and hopefully moving forward. Now, this next story is more about the future, right? I mean, we're talking about energy use requirements. And so apartment building owners try to grapple with these tougher energy use requirements. What, what do we need to learn from this? So I think what we were looking at with this piece um, was how laws in various cities and states across the country um, that are attempting to regulate how much energy is being used and trying to be greener, how that's affecting particularly, you know, like specifically how that might be affecting apartment uh, building owners. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, New York City is requiring all large existing buildings of 25,000 square feet or more uh, to make efficiency upgrades or they face uh, financial penalties. Um, You know, and that's, that's on the extreme Mm -hmm. end, but there are other um, rules that are happening again at the city, city and state level. So, you know, what that means for an apartment owner is, you know, <laughs> costs, yeah, <laughs> at least in the short term, um, to make sure you're either, you're, you know, the building that you're putting up or the building that, that you already have can meet these tougher standards. So some of the industry trade groups that represent the multifamily in- industry, like the NMHC and um, the... National Association of Home Builders um, have tried to 
talk with you know legislators or try to talk with um, other you know other nonprofits about how to balance the goal of energy efficiency without uh, it being too much of a burden on their members. Mm-hmm. So this is mm-hmm. always, you know, one of those, I feel like that's like a kind of a constant um, battle that takes place between, you know, trying to get to a better end uh, around, you know, being more efficient or being greener um, versus like, okay, you know, how's that going to affect our bottom line in the short term? Yeah, I mean it's 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 great to be able to talk about that and and strive for it, but a building that was constructed, you know, 50, 60 years ago is it's not going to be easy to retrofit that with other things that are either going to help with insulation or, or whatever. It's just not it's not going to be nearly as good as any building that's built today with those types of standards and I I can't imagine um somebody with that large of a building having to look and say, "Okay, you know, how much is it going to cost and is there a possible way to get this done without completely being bankrupt?" Um Yeah. Boy, that's tough. Yeah, and I think that's what you're like. That I think that kind of concern um, is in some of the other cities. What you're seeing is that a lot of these conditions are more focused on the newer. You know, like okay, if you're building something new, you have to do X, Y, or Z. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, know, so it's just like you, it's baked into like the new construction as opposed to having to retrofit the older buildings. But like you know, given the size of New York city and the number of buildings here and the amount of energy that gets used. There's just a lot of good that can be done if we can make them more energy efficient. Yeah. Do do you know what's on that list? I mean, just a few of the things that they're trying to have them upgrade. So a lot of it does focus on this, the issue of energy usage and emissions. So that that, that's, I think there may be something about materials, but a lot of these specific um, laws that are discussed in the story are, and uh, are about like cutting emissions up to like, even up to like 40%. So that's Mm, ultimately about the sources of, uh, I think the, the efficiency of the, of the building itself, you know, that you're not like, you know, uh, that the structure isn't leaking um, cooler hot air, so you have to pay extra costs to kind of keep it climate mm-hmm. controlled, or um, what your energy source might be. Gotcha. All right, that makes sense. All right, and then our last story is about self storage. Very interesting. What's going on with self storage? So self storage is a, a sector that doesn't get talked about quite as much when you know, but it is part of the commercial real estate universe. Partly because it's just like a you know, very steady, typically it's a very steady business. It's obviously, you know, mm-hmm. not a hugely expensive asset type to operate. It's, there's a pretty stable demand for it, you know, especially, you know, it's like self-storage facilities near campuses. Like, mm-hmm. you know, those, there's, there's not, there's not a whole lot of up and down. It's just like a nice steady business. Um, but what, what the concern is suddenly is that maybe, um, there being too many built. Hmm. <laughs> so actually getting, getting uh, outpacing the demand that there might be in the market. So there's a forecast that stagnant rent. So rent, you know, given that there are hundreds and hundreds of proper of self-storage properties that are being delivered this year, last year, there's just been a lot coming on the market. Suddenly rents are stagnant because there's just a ton more competition. Mm-hmm. Now developers are finally tapping the brakes. So what they're projecting, talking to, um, we've both talked to CBRE and also data from Yardy Matrix, uh, that, that looking out like, you know, like not this year because a lot of the stuff's already in the works, but maybe next year there are going to be fewer projects delivered. So mm-hmm. what that will hopefully mean is that this, um, the pressure that's being placed on the sector and the, and the declining rents, that that will stop because 
there won't be as much of a um, intense uh, amount of oversupply coming on the market. But it's but the remedy is not again not like in the next six months. Unfortunately, we're looking at more like twenty twenty. Mm, got it. Yeah, I think just like you said, near campus, it's it's all about location, location, location. If there is a location that is going to be high traffic, that would be convenient for people to have a storage unit, like say on on the way to a lake or a, a recreation area where people are going to say, okay, I'd love to be able to store my boat or RV or camper or whatever in this location because it's on the way, it's on the way back. I don't have to take it home. You know, there's facilities to clean it off, be able to put it away uh, and then have some also garage type units for people to store other other items. That's a great spot to have one, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to continue to just kind of cookie cutter these suckers out and and, and increase the amount in total, because the, I, I wouldn't think that the rent would fluctuate a whole lot for ones that are a little bit farther away from the other mass groupings of these types of buildings. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's pretty, I think that, that that's all exactly right. I think, yeah, it's pretty, it, if there's not too much going on in terms of like supply demand issues that the, the rents are going to be pretty stable, demand's going to be pretty stable. I think one of the other factors about self-storage is that it's it's a sector that's kind of a tailing sector and like it, it follows other things. So. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's if there's other kinds of development or other kinds of demand or other things that are happening that then, um, you know, that then create the need for self storage, they they come in. So there is some some market by market differences. So I think one there's some there are some sub markets where the rent maybe is still rising six to eight percent a year just because of the dynamics, but in mm-hmm. other ones, it maybe it has actually declined two to three percent. That, that's yeah. one one of the uh, one of the experts that we talked to pointed out, um, and I think one of the other points or the one of the other data points in the story that just spoke to its performance was that if you look at the self storage REITs, that their net operating income in the past year only grew uh, between one and four percent, whereas when you look at the net occupancy income growth for other REITs. Um, the stealth storage rates are trailing the rest mm-hmm. of the sector. So it's, it's the rest of the sector. So it's just showing just another illustration of some of the pressures that are, that have uh, manifested on self storage. I mean, I guess, you know, the good news is that, you know, that um, income is not dropping, but they're just not growing as fast. And I think hopefully the thinking is as the development here slows, it'll help, for the ultimate outlook for the sector in 2020 and 2021 and beyond. Yeah. And, and if all else fails, David, we can, you know, just like we talked about last week, you had a couple of porta potties and you got yourself a hippie com on. There right? you go. <laughs> a little hippie commune there. It's a, you know, the whole tiny house movement. You could like a tiny garage movement. There you, you go. <laughs> That's even legal, but yeah, I mean, who knows, you know, they can convert some properties. <laughs> sure. It's not unprecedented for someone to live in a self-storage facility, even if they're not <laughs> sure, sure it's not. <laughs> sure it's not. All right, David, this is, this is great. Is there any closing thoughts for today's newscast? Just want to thank, you know, the listeners for, for tuning in, for um, following us on our uh, adventures into the podcast worlds and remind people if they have, um, feedback or thoughts just to, uh, you know, follow the, you know, follow us and to drop us a line. Absolutely. And I want to thank you all too. Thank you for listening to the NREI Weekender with your host, David Budimer. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when David comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at the NREI Weekender, this is Eric Johnson inviting you back next week 
for all the news that matters to you. We'll see you soon. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of NERI Informa. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only.